His sculptures, paintings, and architectural engineering are often considered the high point of Western civilization. But what influences and circumstances actually shaped Michelangelo Buonarroti, one of the greatest artists of all time? Art historian William Wallace joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to explore this question and to help us understand the importance of the Italian Renaissance. And to experience the essence of ancient Greece, from its historical sites to its easygoing small towns, we're exploring the mainland, the Peloponnesian Peninsula today with the help of two expert guides. Anastasia Gaitanu and Colin Clement join us in a moment to recommend how to best soak up the sites and the mythology just a short drive south from Athens. And we're celebrating a little history of our own. Next week marks the fifth anniversary of the premiere broadcast of Travel with Rick Steves. This week, you're listening to program number 200 in our series. Thanks for being our travel partner. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What is it about Michelangelo the man that made him into such an incredible artist? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We'll explore the influences in his life in just a bit with a man who understands what inspired Michelangelo to create some of the greatest works of art of all time. Let's start out today's travel with Rick Steves by exploring the ancient sites and small-town charm of modern Greece, the easy way. From Corinth to ancient Olympia, with untrampled beaches and quiet rustic villages drenched in history at the end of the road, the Peloponnesian Peninsula has everything the traveler to Greece is looking for, and it's just a few hours' drive from Athens. Greece is such a thrilling place to visit, and so many Americans travel in Greece, and everybody's heading out for the islands, and of course everybody checks out Athens. But there's the big Peloponnesian Peninsula, a couple hours' drive south of Athens, that has really every dimension of Greece that you could imagine, easy access from Athens, full of great ancient sites, full of beautiful beaches, also a sort of a rough-and-tumble lawlessness down on the south coast. It's an intriguing corner of Greece that a lot of people overlook. Today, we're not going to overlook the Peloponnese. We're going to travel there with two Greek tour guides. Anastasia Gaetano joins us from Thessaloniki, and Anastasia's been leading groups around Greece, her home country, for 14 years. And Colin Clements worked for me for about over 10 years, I think, now. And Colin's a Scotsman who lives in Alexandria, whose specialty is Greece. Thank you, Colin, and thank you, Anastasia, for joining us. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having us. Peloponnesian Peninsula, Peloponnesos, Peloponnese. What's the confusion with the name? What's the proper name for this peninsula? Well, the Greek pronunciation of it is Peloponnesos, and Nisos means island, because it is like an island. It is connected to the mainland of Greece only by a very small and narrow stretch of land, which now has a canal. So practically now it is an island. <laughs> so this was the island of, of Pelop- Pelops. And Pelops uh, was a, a god. Pelops was uh, a hero of the mythology. Okay. Mm. So back then they considered it an island, even though if they had an aerial view of it, they would yeah. have seen a little piece of land connecting it. <laughs> That's correct. Colin, uh, when you think of uh, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, it's drenched in mythology. It's strengthened mythology and also in the very early history of Greece, of modern Greece as so it's, well. It's really it, integral, really, to the story yeah, of Greece. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first capital of independent Greece after their freedom from the Ottoman Empire was Nafplio, which is a charming town on the uh, Peloponnesian Peninsula. Now, Nafplio, and there's a lot of different ways to spell these in English because it's a transliteration from the Greek and there's not sort mm. of one clear for every case, but basically N-A-F-P-L-I-O. Yeah, you usually see that, yeah. Sometimes N-A-U-P-L-I-O. Nafplio, but to me, it really is a beautiful town. You know, I got to say, there's uh, some uh, different countries have different charms. Cute towns is not really a forte of Greece. There's uh, great sights and great vistas, but a lot of the towns, frankly, are not very good looking. But Nafplion is a gorgeous place. Yeah, it's true. Modern architecture in the past 50 years has not been very kind. And Greece doesn't necessarily have the the charming old medieval hill towns of Italy. But if you get out and about, I mean, you can still find very typical little villages, but they're tucked off the beaten track. That's the great thing about the Peloponnese, is if you get up into the hills, you can find places which really the buses don't go through. So it's, these are accessible, but you need to have a rental car. It's probably frustrating to have public transit to get there. Well, public transit will get you there, but you have to be very well you know, organized. We do have to remember Greece is, uh, compared to other European nations, it's, it's rather small. What is it, 10 million people and 4 million of them are all in Athens? Well, 11 million, I think the figure yeah. is. Uh, it's about 11 billion and 4.5 million of them live in Athens. Now, and 1.3 in Thessaloniki, which means almost everybody is living in the two big cities. So half of the country is living in the two big mm. cities, Thessalonica and Athens. And uh, you get the feeling when you drive around the Peloponnesian Peninsula that at one time it had a bigger population. 
Oh, it did. It had a much bigger population, but that was sort of emptied out towards the end of the Ottoman occupation. By the late 1800s, the early 1900s, there had been a massive emigration out of the land. The scholars, I mean, I'll see what Anastasia feels about this, but there, some scholars say that they were driven out by the instability of Ottoman rule, but other scholars are beginning to see it was basically the collapse of the economy and had nothing to do with, with actual suppression. If you're talking about the instability of Ottoman rule, remember that's when Constantinople, present-day Istanbul, was running the Ottoman Empire and Greece was a part of that. Is that Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that wouldn't have been a pretty picture for a lot of uh, small-town Greeks to be ruled by Constantinople. There was a... Or what was the story there? Well, not exactly. I mean, Greece has almost um, ever been ruled by someone. For some people, it just didn't matter who that someone was. I mean, they had always to pay their taxes, and definitely always the one who was ruling them wanted to get as much as possible, so it really didn't matter. But... um, it was mainly the economical collapse that led a lot of people to leave, not just in the 1800s, but also later on. A lot of them left in the 20s and the 30s, mainly to Absolutely. the USA, Canada, Australia, and many left also in the 50s and 60s to the same reasons. And when I go to Athens, I get the feeling that it's a small town that in the last generation has become a megapolis. It's a town that was never actually planned, that's the trouble. There was no, effectively no Athens when Greece got independence from the Ottoman Empire in the 1830s. What is this, town of... 10,000, 20,000 people at the base of the Acropolis. Not that many. Not even that. 2,000. No. Yeah. 2,000. It yeah. was a very unimportant village, um, not even as famous as in the antiquity, a very small, dry, with a lot of problems village that was picked up to become uh, the capital because of its history. And, and because it was the time of new classicism and everybody wanted to revive this classical um, spirit of the ancient times. But differently, I don't think anyone would pick Athens. So 150 years ago, you'd look at Athens and you'd see a charming little town with a lot of great ruins. And then in the eight, 1950s, 1960s, economic forces basically sent people rushing into the, the city in hopes of jobs, and Athens becomes this sprawling concrete rash, really, on the Greek countryside. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a city which grew with the crises of modern Greece. As modern Greece clawed back more and more land throughout the 19th century from the Ottomans, the city would grow. And then when Greece, in the time of the First World War, well, the Balkan Wars first, when they're wrestling with their Bulgarian and Serbian neighbors over control of the north, which led into the First World War, which led into the the cataclysm of 1922, when the Greeks were occupying forces in Turkey after their defeat by the Allies. It's a long and complex story. But all of these crises sort of set off movements towards the centres. So basically, when there's bad news, people go to the big city. And and there's a lot of bad news in Greece. So a lot of people went to Athens, and today you've got a city of four and a half million people. Now, when you're in the countryside, uh, we're talking about Naphtheon. Every time I think about Naphtheon, I think about um, worry beads, strangely enough, because there's a museum in this little town (laughs) for worry beads. Uh, Anastasia, tell me about worry beads in, in Greece. We're a bit, well, I think we're the only country in which it does not have um, religious significance. It is just something to occupy your hands with, just to um, calm down, don't be so stressed. Well, definitely the origin has to do with the rosario of the church, and it is something we got from the Orient. Definitely. So first of all, we're talking about a little uh, string of beads, what, yeah. 15, 20 beads that uh, no- normally men would keep in his hand. And it looks like a nervous fidget, but it's actually relaxing. Yeah, it is to relax you, because differently you would do something else with your hands. Yeah, so you, you just play with that. Stop just smoking <laughs> so much, huh? Although that doesn't help that no, much. I, I mean, I know a lot of people who tried to stop smoking and they ended up smoking with one hand and playing with the worry bits with the other one. Oh, no. <laughs> it is. Now, you say in Greece it was has no religious connotation, but of course it looks like a uh, rosary beads for a Catholic. Uh, or you've got, you know, yeah. the medieval monks had their long knotted robes. That's its origin. Would, that, that would be counting their okay. prayers. I think it came from further east. I mean, there's, there's, it's, there's a Muslim sort of, worry beads too. The Muslim sepahs. I mean, I, there's some people say that it actually came along the Silk Road. It originated in Buddhist worry beads in the, yeah. in the, the mountains of Central Asia, the northern India, and connected with the Muslims as they pushed into that area. They brought it over to the West mm-hmm. and went through Greece. It ended up being a rosary in, within the Catholic tradition as well. Huh. Now, Anastasia, have you been to this worry bead museum in Netflix? Yes. yes. What is it like? Well, it's a small museum, very cozy museum, but it's a very nice one because you can see a lot of rosary beads or a lot of worry beads, better said, 
that uh, some of them are quite old and they're made out of various materials you can see then how people used to um, play with them or how they used to use them and some of them are made of uh, semi-precious stones or precious stones or even ivory and you can even buy one if you want. So some of them would be poor, just made of nuts or something like this? And, some of them, yes. And then others uh, are semi-precious stones? Yeah. And some of them are even made of silver. It depends. I mean, you can get combo worry beads to suit everybody's pockets. I mean, you can buy cheap plastic ones from the street kiosks, or you can get, you know, amber or hand-tooled mm. ones. I would think it's a precious thing for an older person in Greece. It's a very nice present, actually. They're very handy little presents to take back to, to, yeah, to, to both men and women. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking about Greece, specifically the Peloponnesian Peninsula of Greece, the big peninsula south of Athens. We're talking with Anastasia Gaitanu and Colin Clement. Colin, you take uh, groups around uh, the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Just in a, in a nutshell, what are the highlights from a sightseeing point of view? What do you have to see in the Peloponnesos? Well, undoubtedly, you have to see Olympia, home of the Olympic Games. I think that's an absolute must. Um, for natural splendor, well, there's just so much of it, really. Um, the Mani Peninsula I particularly like because it is so bleak and austere and has its very, very own almost tribal history. That's the very far south of the mainland of it's Greece. It's the though. middle peninsula. If you look at the Peloponnese as ah. being a sort of three-fingered hand, it's gotcha. the middle finger. And the, and the southernmost point of mainland Europe, if I'm not mistaken. That I, I, I like, but it's very, very bleak. Monomvasia is also a must-see, I think, in terms of natural splendor. And then Naflu, probably the most charming city in Greece. So you've talked three very different things. You've got Olympia, which is a great ancient site from centuries before Christ. You've got the Mani Peninsula, which is quintessential, rugged, lawless. Uh, if there was oh, a brigand tomb, land, you brigand know, land, mustachioed yeah. brigand down in the south, you got Monembasia, which is sort of the Gibraltar of that part of the Mediterranean, hugely a, important a fortress on that top one, of a, yeah. a mountain connected by a causeway to the mainland with a, with a great um, military sort of connection, and Nafplio. And then when you think about the Peloponnesian Peninsula, of course, it's a relatively small place with a relatively sparse population and reasonable road system. Absolutely, yeah. And when you rent a car in Athens at the airport, within two hours, you're crossing the Gulf of Corinth. Oh, less. less. Two hours, you're in Nafplio. Three quarters of an hour, you're Well, last time I went, it was Easter, and there was a huge traffic ah, jam. Right. Well, Everybody depends, was... <laughs> yes. If you drive like an Athenian, you can be there very, very quickly. Colin yeah. just gave us the highlights of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. How would you compliment that? Oh, yeah, they definitely belong to the highlights, definitely. And I would also add to that Mycenae and the famous Lion Gate and also Epidavros or Epidorus, how you want to pronounce it. And there is the best preserved uh, theatre of the ancient times in Greece and it is also the one with the best acoustics and we're not the only ones saying that. I mean, already in the ancient times they did acknowledge that. So uh, to complement Colin's uh, recommendation of seeing Olympia, the site of the first Olympic Games, what, 776 BC, yes. you have Mycenae, and yes. uh, I, I always think of it as Mycenae, but the, the real well, actually, pronunciation the, is Mycenae. The Greek pronunciation is Mykines. It's completely different. Uh, what's interesting that to me is it, it is as ancient to the ancient Greeks as the ancient Greeks are to us. It's like a thousand <laughs> years before Socrates and Plato, right? That is true. Incredible yeah. place, and with a mask of Agamemnon uh, associations and so on. And then you mentioned Epidavros, which is the best preserved ancient theater, I think you could say fairly in the ancient world. Oh, uh, yes, I think so. With mm. incredible acoustics. I'm Rick Steves. We're exploring the Peloponnesian Peninsula with Colin Clement and Anastasia Gaitanu. Your phone calls are coming up. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and our email address, radio at ricksteves.com. This is Travel with Rick Steves.
I'm Rick Steves. We're exploring the Peloponnesos, or the Peloponnesian Peninsula, just south of Athens, the grand peninsula that has so much history from ancient and modern Greece. And we're joined by two Greek tour guides, Colin Clement and Anastasia Gaitanou. Again, our phone number, 877-333-RICK. And Deborah's on the line in Cordillera, Colorado. What are your thoughts or comments for Colin or Anastasia? I'm um, planning a trip with my three teenage boys and my husband to Greece this summer, and we've timed the trip to be there for the full moon because we were planning to be out on the water, hoping to do some type of yacht or motor sail vessel where we could introduce the boys to Greece. We chose Greece and the Mediterranean because they're of an age now where all three of them have studied Greece. Um, We decided to start in the history, the cradle of civilization. So they're teenage boys, 16, 14, and 12. They're active. They love to eat. They love to swim. They love to be on the move. And it's overwhelming to me all that Greece has to offer, and I can't seem to bring it into one trip. Okay. Anastasia can give uh, Deborah some tips on a family trip. Well, if you're planning to stay on the mainland, um, are you planning to rent a car? Um, No. We had just wanted to spend a couple days in Athens and then head out to the islands and the coast. Well, one week is not really that much time. So what I would do is I would stay two or three days in Athens, maybe, and then I would take a ferry, which is very easy, from Piraeus Port. That's the biggest port of Greece and the port of Athens. It's very easy to get there. And I would go to an island, and most probably I wouldn't go to one that is very far because you don't want to spend all your time on ferries. You want to see things. And then from one island I would go to another one. That would keep you on the move, and public transportation on the islands is very easy. And you can combine a lot of things. You can see ancient sites, you can see museums, you can go to beaches, you can mingle with the local people. And I suppose that is what the trip is all about. You have the option of renting a boat with a captain. You have a family of five. That would be an option from Piraeus also. Yeah, you can do that. Then you can choose also the islands you want to go. And My, son did that. My son did that with a bunch of fellow students mm. on a university break. You can also celebrate the full moon on the deck of the boat that you have rented, and that's even better. Do you recommend any particular charter companies? No, not really, because everyone is different and the offers vary every year. So the best thing is when you get there to do your own survey and decide what is best for you. So efficient to go to the Peloponnesos, the Peloponnesian Peninsula that we're talking about, and think of it as an island. You go to the south coast of the Peloponnese and it feels like you're on an island. And from near Naphtleon, you can take a boat out to one of my favorite islands in all of Greece, which is Hydra, H-Y-D-R-A. Uh, So consider that with a family of five in a rental car, you will have a much easier time. You'll never have to carry your bags if you just pick up a big car at the airport and head south in the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Colin, any thoughts on uh, on Deborah's plans? I think you have to sort of zero in. Less is more sometimes. And if you want to go for the yachting option, then you have to nail it down to do the yachting option. Whether you want to bareboat it, that is take the boat yourself and sail it yourself if you have experience, or get into a flotilla or get into a situation where you have a crew on board. If you want to do that, you nail that down, and I think you spend two days in Athens and then do the yachting. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you only have a week, don't do the yachting. Go to Peloponnese Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. uh, then you won't be stranded somewhere if there is a strong wind. The best thing is rent a car, I would say. Go to one of the islands that are not very far from the coast. Hydra, for example, as as Rick suggested, is a great idea. Or Spetses, S-P-E-T-S-E-S. It's also very near. And... Trust me, that would be a great experience you won't forget. Deborah, good luck with introducing your family to the wonders of Europe via the capital of the ancient world, Greece. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Scott's on the phone in Seattle, Washington. Scott, thanks for your call. Oh, it's good to talk to you. Yeah. I was just in Greece just this last October with my daughter. She had been taking a study class in Corinth and uh, kind of threw me the hook of, Dad, when I'm done, would you join me here maybe for a daddy-daughter adventure? It has really become one of the highlights for us to share and something that is just absolutely unbeatable. I flew into Athens, rented a car, drove to Brahati outside of Corinth, and we did a kind of a counterclockwise loop of the Peloponnese from Corinth down to Naphio to Idra to Cardamili, all the way back up north through Olympia to Delphi and then back to Athens. 
an absolutely just wonderful, wonderful adventure. Any advice to other fathers who want a daughter-daddy adventure like this? you got to do it. <laughs> that, that's the first thing. She and I travel very, very well. And we just had a lot of fun and really took a lot of time. So with her on the map and me on the steering wheel, we managed to get lost a few times, but who cares? That's great. And what was your favorite ancient site experience? Wow. We uh, had a wonderful time at uh, Mycenae and Epidavros. Both days that we spent there were just really, really excellent. And we had planned only one day at Idra, and a storm picked up, and so the ferries couldn't come in. And so we're actually stuck on Idra for an extra day, and even though that may not be an ancient site, it also became just a terrific experience of just being forced to kick back and sit by the harbor and have another espresso and go for a long stroll. We had a great time at Delphi as well, and it was very stormy mm-hmm. when we were there. And so if you sort of imagined the oracle at Delphi in those craggy mountains mm-hmm. in the fog and the pouring rain, it would be darn intimidating. Dad, you're making a nice positive experience out of the bad weather. That's, that's a good idea. <laughs> Only hey, one day out of ten well, was, uh, was sour, but uh, it was really, really so terrific. You got stuck on the little island of Eder because of a storm and the ferries had to cancel. Cullen, uh, what would you do if you had to get stuck on Eder? That'd be bad I news or smile. good news? <laughs> I would smile. I'd thank the gods. I know. I think that was lucky for you because, frankly, one night in Eder is not enough. You don't yeah. have time to slow down. That's right. Uh, You've you got to take it easy. There's no point going to Eder in a hurry. It's not made for that. That's very, very true. And we had two days in a lot of places, and it was just sort of, well, we'll if we spend two days in Cardamili, we can only afford one day on Idra. Uh, and I think it really was fortuitous yeah. that the schedule was interrupted. For one reason, I'm enthusiastic about Idra because it's a fast boat connection from Athens. There's, what, it's two hours or so by... Less. A, less than know. two hours by a fast boat from Athens. And you're in this huge, sprawling metropolis. Two hours later... You're sipping your Vetsina in With this no wonderland. Vehicles. Yeah. There's no cars on there. But there are two rubbish no. trucks. Rubbish and there's just donkeys. <laughs> Otherwise, it's don- donkeys. Yeah. I think we noticed a police truck and a dump truck, like a garbage truck. Yeah. And then the mules and the uh, wheelbarrows and the hundreds and hundreds of little tiny cats mm. that ran around and greeted us constantly. So that was sort of the other highlight of the trip for my daughter. We thought she had died and gone to heaven and surrounded by all these kittens who just wanted to get close and purr. Anastasia, what are some thoughts that you have on Idra? Well, it's a wonderful place, definitely. Great architecture, very picturesque. You're very near to the big metropolis, and you can really loosen up, have your coffee, and and, and really relax and and enjoy this wonderful scenery and the sunsets and everything. I think it's really great. Well, with our driving trip, the other thing which we, we really enjoyed and discovered was you're driving along and you see another sign for some ancient site. And you get off the beaten track and you say, well, we're not really on a schedule. Let's go see what this is. You've got to have that freedom to really enjoy the Peloponnesos correctly. When you were down in the far south, Scott, uh, in the Mani Peninsula, what was your impression of that? You know, it was also gorgeous. And I'm actually probably blurring some of my experience when we got a little bit farther north. And just the rolling hills and the acres and acres of olive trees, it was absolutely delightful. And, And driving it was a lot of fun all the little windy roads and getting to the top of some ridge, being able to see for miles and miles. Of I, I assume uh, that you do not speak Greek. How was the, <laughs> how, how the language, forgive me if you do, but uh, most Americans wouldn't. Um, no. How was the language barrier problem? You know, we learned a handful of phrases, and my daughter had been there a month, so we were pretty good at all the courteous kinds of phrases. Right. But then uh, I've traveled in Spain and Italy, the U.K., and in France a little bit. So you, you know the um, English alphabet. So that was probably the thing which I, I wish I had spent just a little bit more time on. Is to learn the Greek alphabet. Well, or to be able to say, okay, I think that's the word of the town we're looking for. Yeah, you need to know the Greek alphabet. Yeah, right. so, or, or the substitutions. My daughter was in Verhati, which in one sense begins with the letter V, but on the sign begins with the letter B. And so just to make sure that you're reading these uh, highway signs correctly, it would have been helpful to know a little bit more. But I... I didn't know. I still think it's great that you actually got out there and drove. I've come across an awful lot of North Americans, and indeed Western Europeans, who are intimidated by the notion of driving in Greece, whereas it's really doable these days. There's been an awful lot of work on the infrastructure. The roads are much, much better than they were 20 years ago. And it's a good option, because as you manage to do, you get off the beaten track. You can stop and explore all these little sites. I couldn't have imagined it doing any other way. And don't be a stickler about spelling. If it looks like the town and if it looks misspelled... 
It's probably spelled correctly. It's just an alternative spelling, and go and check it out. Hey, Scott, uh, what, what do you think you and your daughter's favorite food was after a, a wonderful uh, daddy-daughter time in the Peloponnese? <laughs> we had uh, a lot of really wonderful Greek salads and a lot of baklava that we would go back for in an instant, and pretty extraordinary rosemary lamb and rosemary chicken. Mm. If I could have broken into the kitchen and stolen recipes, those would have been the things to bring home. Anastasia, when you bring a groups of Americans around Greece, what do you find is their uh, most pleasant surprise with the food? It's a lot better than they expected. And it's quite different from what they get at home because, of course, um, whenever there is a restaurant somewhere else in another country, the food is always a bit adjusted. Ah, you mean um, when if you go to a Greek restaurant in yeah, America, Greek restaurant you'll America. find different Greek it's food It's a bit in different. Yeah. It's adjusted. And I think, realistically, get used to the Greek salad every night, mm. and it's wonderful. I mean, if, if you... If tomatoes taste great. Oh, the, the tomatoes yeah. taste so good in Greece. What is it about the tomatoes well, in Greece? Well, they taste of tomato, actually. <laughs> They taste of tomato. I think it's what's in the rest of the world. You know, the produce no longer tastes very much. Yeah. Whereas in Greece, it's not a refined cuisine, but the produce still tastes of what it is supposed yeah. to taste of. We stopped at a couple roadside stands to pick up fruit and things like that, and even, I think, a liter of wine from one of these roadside stands. And so that we were quite quite happy kind of stopping by and just looking at the produce and getting things and yeah. throw them in the pack in the back of the car and off we go again. You know, Scott, I asked a man who was one of the leading wine salespeople in Naplion, a vintner there, I said, if you have $30 and you want to buy a good bottle of, a really good bottle of Greek wine, what should it be? And he said, $30? Buy three bottles at $10 each. <laughs> uh, in other words, you don't spend a lot of money for a fine wine in Greece. Absolutely, but yeah. uh, is that your take, Colin? Oh, absolutely, certainly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was always that. very adequate wine. And Nothing it, really to write home about, right. but it was quite adequate and... It was a lot of fun. And one of my nostalgic things from my childhood travels in Greece is the uh, Retsina, that wine that has mm -hmm. the, the pine tar. And uh, mm -hmm. you don't have that anymore much. I mean, Anastasia, is that sort of gone with the times? Well, it was something that everybody used to drink then till the 70s, maybe till the middle of the 80s. But then the 80s and the 90s were a time of economical growth in Greece, and it became a synonym of uh, poor people who could not afford a good wine. So it started disappearing then from all the good restaurants. But times change, and everything moves in cycles. And now with all this financial crisis, then since the beginning of 2000, it started reappearing. Thank God, because I love it. Yeah. Although you have to know the secret, the real love to it comes after the fourth glass. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely an acquired taste. Thanks, Scott, for your call. Thank you for letting me talk. Happy travels. Take care. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're exploring the Peloponnesian Peninsula, south of Athens in Greece, and I'm joined by two Greek tour guides, Colin Clement and Anastasia Gaitanou. There were big fires in the recent years, especially hitting hard the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Anastasia, what's the story with the, the fires in the Peloponnese now? Um, this was the worst fires ever in Greece, and they did affect a great part of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Although, if you travel to Peloponnese, you won't see that, or you won't see much of it, because it is mainly high in the mountains, and it is in a region where not a lot of people go. It was um, a devastating time. People were killed in those fires. Uh, definitely it was an arson. We don't know exactly how or why, but we do know without, of course, being able to prove that, that there are a lot of interests then by major companies there of uh, building uh, huge complexes, a uh, new road and things like that. Of course, we can prove it, but, you know. I remember being at Olympia, actually, the great ancient site of Olympia, surrounded by blackened trees. It was. Yeah, it was just in 2007, just after the, the fires. It was devastating, I think, to the morale of Greece as well, because mm -hmm. it, was, it was cataclysmic. It destroyed the livelihood of an awful lot of country livers. Uh, but it also showed up, dare I say, the incompetence of the authorities. It was very Completely. badly handled. Granted, it is part of the ecology of Greece to have these fires. They happen every year, and they will happen naturally, whatever. And it was the perfect storm. We'd had a very dry winter. We'd an extremely hot summer, had very high winds. So it was going to happen, but it was dramatic. Colin, if you're going to take the most evocative sort of um, slice of the Peloponnesian Peninsula and share it with an American traveler, where would that be? One particular spot. Sorry, just one. <laughs> oh, that's difficult. Or that's think of five and choose one uh, just at random. Subs uh, one spot that not many people hit is, is well, the town of Sparta, which is so famous in history, but it's, there's nothing of ancient Sparta there. 
There's absolutely, I mean, there's a touch of Roman Sparta, sort of second century AD Sparta, but none of the great Sparta of Leonidas and the 300 and all the sort of stuff that we... So this was, the, this was sort of the boot camp of the ancient world absolutely. compared to I mean, the uh, sophisticated Athenians. This was their rival and it was just nothing it, but... It was uh, a militarized society. A I mean, Prussia you, you, of the ancient yes, world. Yes, yes, a Prussia or even, you know, it was fascistic, one could say. I love that <laughs> phrase. I love that phrase. Mothers would tell their boys, come home with your shield or, or on, on it. it. Absolutely. No, it was that sort of place. Sparta, modern Sparta, is a nice airy town. It's quite a charming grid square town. And just outside of it is what was the last capital of the Byzantine Empire, a great flowering of thought and culture and art in the uh, late 1300s and the early 1400s um, before the Ottoman Turks moved into the area. Now, it's a big sort of romantic tumbling of ruins down a spur of the Taigetos Mountains. And that mountains. would be Byzantine then? Byz- of the Byzantine Empire, the end of the Byzantine okay. Empire, which and was that extended Orthodox Christian oh. Empire that ran the east after the fall of, of Western Rome. And as a tour guide, I think you're reminding people, of course, we're going to check out the ancient stuff in the, in the golden age of Greece, but it's quite a complex baklava historically, yes. and Byzantium is another slice of Greece. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the Peloponnesian Peninsula with Colin Clement and Anastasia Gaetanou. Anastasia, if you were going to take uh, an American friend to the Peloponnesian Peninsula, what one experience would you be certain that they have? Hmm. Besides that one of, yes. of Sparta, well, I would say Moninvasia, most probably, because it is something that um, usually people do not expect to see in Greece. It is an amazing scenery. I think it's breathtaking. It's a huge rock then in the sea. And uh, there used to be a city there in the Byzantine era and also in the Middle Ages and later on. But it is very well hidden. And Moninvasian means only one entrance. And it only had one entrance. It was very well protected and fortified. And there is the upper city and the lower city. And I would definitely get them all those steps then up to the upper city, which is full of ruins, of course, now. But you have a great view. And you have one of the most wonderful churches ever, I think, situated so beautifully at the brink of the rock. Then you think you really have this, this, this feeling that it's going to slide down, but it doesn't for about 700 years now and, and more. <laughs> Mo, Monemvasia. Monemvasia. A wonderful it is slice. a wonderful place, a very romantic place, a place where you can really um, feel all this centuries, if not thousands of years of history, and you can still enjoy this wonderful atmosphere there and have good food and a good drink and a, a wonderful time. Very romantic little boutique hotels in the lower That's town true. as well. That's right. Oh, no, it's a great place for, you know, you want a little hideaway with your partner. And good wine. It's probably famous among Athenians for a nice little Oh, hideaway. absolutely. You get lots of upscale weddings there in yeah, the weekend. That's where you go. Yeah. Colin and Anastasia, Ephestol. Barakalo. Barakalo. Will set our time machine forward a bit now to just 500 years ago, as art historian William Wallace joins us next to explore the influences that helped to make Michelangelo the epitome of the Italian Renaissance. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Sono Cecilia Bottai, produco vini di qualità in Italia e stiamo viaggiando con Rick Steves. And that's the Italian for I am Cecilia Bottai, I make fine wines in Italy and we are traveling with Rick Steves. Sono Cecilia Bottai, produco vini di qualità in Italia e stiamo viaggiando con Rick Steves. Grazie. It seems to me, travelers who love art, of course, love Michelangelo, and all of them are just sharing stories they picked up after reading The Agony and the Ecstasy. Great book. But uh, I think there's a lot more to Michelangelo than The Agony and the Ecstasy, and we're going to learn about that now. We're joined by Professor William Wallace, and uh, William Wallace is a professor of art history at Washington University in St. Louis. He's written five or six books on Michelangelo. His latest is called Michelangelo, The Artist, The Man, and His Times. Professor Wallace, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm an I'm a enthusiast for Michelangelo. You know, the agony and the ecstasy just made everything so vivid and so real and so human. Uh, you're going at it a little more 
scholarly approach. What are, do you have any frustrations about people who know Michelangelo through the agony and the ecstasy? None whatsoever. It's the first book I read on Michelangelo. It's what took me to Italy. It excited me about Michelangelo the first time I was in Italy. And I reread The Agony and the Ecstasy before writing a biography of Michelangelo just to see how good a book it was. Uh, maybe the main difference is that, of course, Irving Stone was writing a novel. So right. certain parts of it are made up. Um, I'm purporting to write a biography which purports to have true things in it. And you're a, you're a college professor and I'm a tour guide. So I can. I don't a, think they're so far away <laughs> from one another. I, I, I like to. Take I would it. rather be more tour guide, and you should, you'll be more professorial. Okay, well let's let's change hands here and I'll ask a few questions. There's a myth and there's a reality when it comes to people's understanding, popular understanding of Michelangelo. I've got an image of him, uh, you know, slaving away in the Sistine Chapel, this vast room on scaffolding he constructed himself because being a Renaissance man, nobody else could uh, design it until that time. And he was laying up there doing one patch at a time because it's working on wet plaster and you can just do as much as you can do in a day. And he got a stiff neck from that. Uh, What was the reality? Well, um, not so far off. It's just that nobody can undertake doing a project of that scale and magnitude by himself. And really, that is the image we have from the agony and the ecstasy, that he basically couldn't get along with assistants and didn't have very many friends and couldn't tolerate any kind of help whatsoever. But the truth is he had 13 people in the chapel helping him to construct that scaffold and to prepare the plaster every single day, to trim brushes, to mix up paints, to haul water, lots of water from the floor all the way up to the top of that ceiling— uh, now, he did dismiss a few of them as well. Um, but, but it was a coordinated team. And it was a coordinated was team. Was he the manager? And he would be the manager. So he had to run a business, 13 he, men. He was, and he was a very successful manager of men. And he went on from the Sistine to actually construct architectural projects, which are always multiple large groups of individuals. And he was, in fact, a very successful manager of talent. I understand when he got the commission to design St. Peter's Basilica, the Dome, He said on the condition that you will give me an army of workers so I can get as much of it completed in my lifetime as possible. That's right. And he inherited a workforce that has was working under somebody else before him, and he did want to place certain of his own particular chosen individuals into positions of importance. Here's another sort of psychological angle on Michelangelo, the artist, the man, and his times. I understand he got in a fight when he was younger and somebody broke his nose, and he was always... um, a little shy or uh, disappointed in his personal ugliness, which inspired him to create more beauty. It's a famous story. It's undoubtedly true. But the further story that's very interesting is the kid that broke Michelangelo's nose was supposedly exiled from Florence. Well, I've never heard of anybody being exiled over a 13-year-old fight. Um, But it is true that Michelangelo was disfigured early in his life, and the idea that maybe he was compensating all of his life is Hmm. probably not impossible. Driven to create beauty. But I I would like to think there's probably a more profound reason than just for his own self-satisfaction that he's really creating for God. That's an interesting point, because I like to think of humanism as something that's not exclusive from Christianity or somebody who has a faith. Humanism, to me, is not bowing down in church all day long in in a superstitious kind of way, but recognizing the talents God gives you and thinking it's almost a responsibility to use them constructively. Does that fit Michelangelo's sort of ideal of humanism? I think that's a very nice way of putting it. It's most important to emphasize exactly how religious Michelangelo was all of his life. There was no question whatsoever about his deeply profound Christianity. So when he does a well-worn topic like a Pieta or a crucifix or a Last Supper, he's not just checking that off, he he's meditates on it and talks with theologians and his priests or whatever and tries to get a particular angle on it to make a theological point? I think this is probably why these figures can still move us 500 years later, that they still have relevance to us. Um, yes, he's very profoundly thinking about the stories of Christianity, especially when he's painting the Sistine ceiling. So when you're a Renaissance thinker and a Renaissance artist and you see a medieval Pieta, Pieta by definition is Mary with Jesus' dead That's body right. taken That's off right. the cross, and you see a, a Pieta, uh, the Christ's body is about as heavy as a papier-mâché model, not very realistic. Michelangelo would be disturbed by that because as a person who's really driven to get reality into his art, he would want to show the dead weight of a crucified Christ. As in fact he does in that early Pietà that's in St. Peter's. It's a very full-size human being that weighs a lot and has the dead weight on Mary's lap. So Mary's holding not only her son but her dead son who died for your sins. That's the theological point. Profoundly moving. 
and Michelangelo uses reality tricks to show the weight of Jesus' dead body. Indeed, you can actually see him sort of slumping into her lap and the, the drapery being pressed by the body as his dead weight sinks towards the grave. I can envision Mary's fingers kind of digging into Jesus' side because his body is so heavy. On one side, yes. On the other side, her hand is open and presenting Christ to us for our meditation. Oh, now explain this to me because I'm a Protestant and I don't quite get the importance of Mary. And, I'm a Protestant too. <laughs> but but, but, but a, a priest or a, a nun or a monk or a, a person who uh, understands this takes you on a tour of St. Peter's and the culmination of the tour is the Pieta. And the idea here is Jesus is gone. Mary's holding him. And when Jesus, before he died, he, he, he kind of said, I'm going and Mary, you're going to be here with John and take care of the flock or something like that. Mary accepts that. And here she is with his body looking down at worshipers. And I think, unfortunately, we can't get close enough to the Pieta to look up at it like Michelangelo intended, right? Mm, or can not quite. You? Um, because really he carved that as a tomb memorial. So it really should sit down low on the floor. And Mary's face is actually tilted significantly downward because she's meditating on his body and oh, looking, she's looking towards at... the grave ah. in front of the Pieta. It has now been put very high up on an altar. What we're really supposed to look at is the body of Christ, which is why Michelangelo polishes it so beautifully. And the last bit of light that falls from above will fall on his body as if to illuminate and give him a certain amount of life, even in death. See, now, to understand all of that makes the experience of going there much more powerful. And we're not, neither of us are Catholic. You so can, the very fact that this artist can still move us is really quite remarkable. And I learned that 10, 15 years ago, leave your Protestant sword at the door when you go inside <laughs> and accept it on its terms and celebrate it. It's an incredible triumph for an artist to come out of the Middle Ages and be in the Renaissance and to be able to incorporate this new ability to get reality to make that theological point. Indeed. In fact, one of the most difficult things in taking students on tours is oftentimes they're sort of strangely unmoved by relics, which are so significant and important to the Catholic faith, but very, very far removed from our own reality. There's so many dimensions that you can get into in your travels, and, and to, to be able to take yourself back and understand the art in its context and the artist in that time really enlivens the experience. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Professor William Wallace. He's written several books on Michelangelo. His latest is Michelangelo, the Artist, the Man, and His Times. And we're talking about myths and reality, about this image of the most, probably the most popular artist of all time, the most written-about artist of all time. Indeed. One of the longest-lived and the best-documented artists before the 19th century. We know more about Michelangelo than any other artist until almost modern now, times. part of that is because in the Renaissance, artists were well-known and celebrated individuals, whereas in the Middle Ages, they were anonymous craftspeople. And Michelangelo did more than any other artist to help raise the stature of a profession, which was largely a manual profession and a rather lowly one until Michelangelo came along. Well, would that have been annoying to his patrons? It was very annoying to his father, who certainly didn't want him to be an artist. We can give him more credit for raising the stature of the artistic profession than any other artist subsequently. So Michelangelo has this classic case where you got the son that's going to be a musician or an artist exactly. or a painter or something. No, his dad exactly goes, right. come on, man, I gave you an education. <laughs> be a banker. Exactly right. His father was a banker, a landowner, and in the cloth trade, which was very respected in Florence. But being an artist was a rather lowly profession. Well, well Michelangelo, as a 13-year-old, was invited into the Medici's Palace. I mean, that'd be like being invited into the White House if you were just a street musician. You know what I like to say, Rick, is that two years in the Medici household was better than a four-year college education at Harvard. Okay, I have this image that every Tuesday night, the Medicis would get together all these uh, guys who were into Plato and pre-Christian thinking, which was kind of dicey at the time, and get together and, and celebrate this radical, revolutionary, renaissance humanism, pre-Christian thinking. And I think we need to remember how much education comes verbally in the Renaissance ah. especially. People didn't read books. A few books were read over and over again, known very well, and then shared out loud. So Michelangelo could have been a, a natural phenom as far as being able to sculpt, but without that Renaissance foundation, that, that philosophy and theology and everything he picked up in the aristocratic realm of That's the Medici, in that formative age from 13 to 15... You could make a case we might not be talking about him today. Precisely right. And I, it's not because he's reading a lot of Latin. It's because he's around the smartest people of his age. He hung out with two Medici guys who became popes. 
So better watch out when you're 13 and 15. <laughs> you never know which one of your friends is going to be elected pope. That's exactly right. So Whoa. he was employed for an exceptionally long time by very powerful individuals. Now, I have an image of him that he sort of just was a little reckless personally. I, like he, he didn't have great hygiene and probably not great uh, records of his banking and everything. And that he died, uh, like a lot of artists, poor and uh, uh, less appreciated than you might think. But apparently that's not correct according to your book. It's a very 19th century romantic idea that artists die for their art. But in the Renaissance, if you were a good artist, you were paid well. And Michelangelo was a, really a multimillionaire by the time he died. Now, he, he invested all of his money in land, which until about you know a few months ago was really a very wise investment in the world and certainly was in the Renaissance Florence. It was the safest and, and most ah, guaranteed. So investment. he was well paid and he took his money and put it into land. Into land. That's more responsible than a lot of rock stars in our generation. Exactly right. No, yeah. he was very concerned about the propagation of his family. So land was the guarantee of making sure that his legacy was passed along. He was very concerned about leaving something to help his family be well set up when he was gone. That's right. Did he drive a hard bargain for what he'd be paid? Absolutely. No, I mean, money was always an issue and uh, sort of complicated. This is one place he I almost fails. blame him for the Reformation because when they were fixing up Rome, the Pope essentially hired all the Florentine artists to go down to Rome, and the Pope needed to make a lot of money, so he sent those guys up to Germany telling them, if you can contribute a little extra, we'll get you on the, on the fast train to heaven. Indeed, St. Peter's was probably the reason why you invent indulgences to pay for this gigantic building that Michelangelo is the architect of. Tetzel was raising money. That's right. That's right. To pay for Michelangelo because <laughs> he had to go up to Carrara and get that marble. But it's a little unfair to blame the Reformation <laughs> on Michelangelo. He lived through three very interesting times. You know, when he grows up young, it's a unified world of one religion. Then he watches the Reformation take place. And then all of a sudden, he also lives through the counter-reformation where the Catholic Church in a sense fights back and Michelangelo is very important in all three of those. Well, psychoanalyze that for me for just a moment because most of us know the Sistine Chapel and on the ceiling you got the creation and it's glorious and Adam is created from the spark of life like we've seen in the bottom of swimming pools almost with the same stature as God. I mean, Adam is quite impressive. And then much, much later, a whole different age, Michelangelo is hired to come back and do the last judgment on the wall. And this is after the Catholic army of Spain has looted Rome, right? I mean, the, right. the Catholic Church right. is no longer Catholic in a universal sense. And now we have the Counter-Reformation. Exactly and right. And a vindictive Christ coming down with his fist raised. Well, I'm not so sure he's vindictive, Rick. We should look very, very closely at Christ's face because it's, in fact, a very forgiving one. But you're absolutely right that 25 years later, an artist is coming back and, in a sense, editing his own work okay, so and giving got, us a whole different dimension. You got that positive high Renaissance humanism in the ceiling. Exactly. And then 25 years later, psychoanalyze the Last Judgment. Well, I would actually say that it's another form of positivism in the Last Judgment. It's just a reaffirmation of a different kind of positive. Oh, positivism. Like, if you don't say the rosary, you're going to yes, hell. Yes, exactly. That's true. You call true. that positive? Well, yes. We have to be, you know, an assertion of Catholic faith here. So you got people going to hell and you got people popping out of their and uh, you know exactly which going side to you're going to be on. Uh, except for Michelangelo. Well, was, that's was, right. Isn't that a story? He was dangling from a rosary His, there? His uh, supposed self-portrait is <laughs> dangling from the in the skin of St. Bartholomew, who and might Bartholomew. actually drop it accidentally into hell. Or you could interpret it that Michelangelo, because he did the proper uh, routines, uh, would be saved, even though he w wasn't deserving of it. I think he was largely making art precisely to deserve his place in heaven. Oh, you think this Michelangelo his... was... That was his... His Not only that, everything he did in the last 30 years of his life was a part of his salvation. Wow. He was concerned for the salvation of his soul more than anything else. I suppose it must have been fun for you to delve into all of this because there's a lot of written material from the age. Michelangelo wrote a lot of letters himself. Tremendous amount of documentary material. We have 500 letters of Michelangelo, many of which, all of which have been translated into English. But we also have 900 letters written to Michelangelo and almost none of them have been translated. So what we're doing is realizing a much richer view of Michelangelo in his, in his context, his social world. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Professor William Wallace, uh, author of several books on Michelangelo. His latest is Michelangelo, The Artist, The Man, and His Times. William, when you think about a Renaissance artist, and Michelangelo is sort of the quintessential Renaissance artist, by definition that is broad, not just a painter or not just a sculptor, but wouldn't he be expected to do a lot of things? He was a painter. He was a sculptor. He was an architect. He was a very significant poet, and he was certainly the greatest engineer of the Renaissance. We always think of Leonardo as an engineer, but Leonardo just thought about it. Michelangelo actually did it. Now, in Michelangelo's heart of heart, did he figure one of those professions was the most noble? 
probably sculpture, but towards the end of his life, he became ever more wedded to poetry, and poetry became a way to sort of seek his salvation. If I psychoanalyze Leonardo and Michelangelo, I feel they are two great Renaissance artists with a fundamentally different approach to things. Leonardo was more the proud humanist that could create from nothing, painting on a blank canvas and creating something incredibly beautiful. Michelangelo would say, you know, Leonardo, that's pretty impressive, but it's much more noble for you to be a tool of God and to take marble and to recognize what's in there and chip away the excess and reveal the beauty that God made that that makes me a tool of God. That's kind of a Christian humanism. It's a very nice way of saying it, Rick. Um, But Leonardo was a generation older than Michelangelo and so actually served as a kind of role model on how to become a gentleman artist, a kind of great creator, a great humanist artist. Ah. So Did even he though they didn't Michelangelo? Like, I think absolutely. Because even Michelangelo, Michelangelo wouldn't admit it. Michelangelo was like the opposite of a gentleman no, exactly. artist. He'd exactly. be sweaty pit with a little candle Precisely. on his beanie to chip at night if he was so inspired. Until late in life when he ever more fashioned himself as an aristocrat. I love it in your book, William, when you talk about how the Sistine Chapel, the Pieta, David, Moses, St. Peter's, they still have the power to move us 500 years after they were made. And then you quote the words of Johannes Goethe, the great German philosopher, saying, until you've seen the Sistine Chapel, you can have no adequate idea of what humankind is capable of achieving. It's a very moving quote and very, very true even today. And as a traveler, when we go to Rome and we look at the Sistine Chapel, we can appreciate the power and the courage and the dedication of Michelangelo to bringing us into the modern age. I've never known anybody, even though it's replicated over and over again, who isn't moved by the experience of actually seeing it in person. Professor William Wallace, author of Michelangelo, The Artist, The Man, and His Times, thank you for giving us an insight to, I think you could say, the greatest artist that ever walked well, I would the face of Western civilization. Thank you very much, Rick. You're welcome. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We have help from Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Our website has guest links, audio archives on demand, a form to send us your original travel haiku, and a section for your travel reports or comments on what you hear in each week's show click on the radio tab at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. His Europe 101, History and Art for Travelers, and his new Travel as a Political Act books deal with a higher set of road skills. And his country and city guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.